And for Jung, he found that everything that he thought he was died immediately, but that he was still someone. Deep down, beneath the, the name Carl Jung and all the professional success and his marriage, his children, everything, he, his culture, the, uh, the slowly disintegrating Europe that he lived in prior to World War I, he found that beneath all of that was this more stable self. And it wasn't stable in the sense that it was unchanging, but it was stable in the sense that it was an expression of something more authentic, something deeper. For me, I think that's probably what sustains me. Welcome to uh, the podcast here today. We have Nathan Smith, who is the creator of Mind Makes This World, his YouTube channel he just started, and someone that I met from the restoration table way back yonder, and I just thought it'd be fun to talk to him. Yeah. Um, so I'm, like you said, I'm Nathan. I am a student at Texas State right now, uh, eternally locked in my undergrad degree. Uh, almost finished, I think, but it's been a long time. Uh, majoring in psychology, minoring in anthropology, and I uh, have plans to go to grad school to become a psychotherapist after that. Um, and the the YouTube channel that I made, Mind Makes This World, uh, I, I became good friends with um, Stephen Pinecker of Mormon Book Reviews, who was very encouraging to me to uh, like get out there and try to create like original content that I felt like would be uh, beneficial to other people. And so after a lot of discussions back and forth between him and I in the background, uh, I settled on the name Mind Makes This World. I put out, I think, about nine videos so far, and it's kind of in its beginning stages. I'm still sort of feeling things out, but it's been fun. I, I didn't realize I was going to enjoy making video essays as much as I did, and there's a couple interviews in there, too, that I'm, I'm very proud of. Um, so, yeah, I've, on top of that, too, actually, I, I've done a, oh, gosh, years and years of writing on Medium uh, for a publication called Interfaith Now, um, I don't really write for interfaith now, nowadays, uh, but I, I specialized in writing about Mormonism and I kind of focused on like Mormonism at the crossroads of like philosophy, psychology, history, theology. And I tried to tackle what I felt like were especially pressing issues. And I tried to, um, try to get at deeper issues underlying what are essentially like passing controversies, um, there. So if people want to read any of that, that's studio nightflight.medium.com. Okay. I'll, I'll make sure I link that. Yeah. I, um, so funny enough, I, back when I was like 17, I was introduced to what was at the time fair Mormon. Um, and now I think they're fair Latter-day Saints, um, with the, with the name change, uh, and everything like that. But, uh, at the time they were fair Mormon and I was really taken with this group of people that like were addressing, issues and topics that I had never really actually heard about. I mean, I grew up in Texas, like in the proverbial buckle of the Bible belt. And uh, the worst I ever really heard was like, you know, like weird, like not really well thought out old 19th century, like anti-Mormon stuff. So nothing terribly like sophisticated, but um, I found this website and they would address these like really deep issues that I, I had never heard anything about. And funny enough, the issues at the time really didn't bug me or bother me. It was more like the ancillary details around them that really fascinated me, like trying to understand like literary analysis of the Book of Mormon, like translation theories or 
like geographical models. That was so fascinating to me. So it wasn't even like the apologetics of it. It was kind of like the details around it. So, uh, yeah, so I, 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 I actually engaged Fair Mormon for, I, I was a volunteer apologist answering emails and everything from like December 2011 to about March 2013, right before my mission. And funny enough, I don't think a lot of people think of Fair Mormon this way, but uh, I became more liberal and progressive in my religious views at, through my time at Fair Mormon, probably despite some, some folks' intentions, but uh, mm. I took that on my mission and that was, that was not very well received. Uh, by other missionaries and other mission leaders, uh, it's it, the mission field is very much one that caters to like the most legalistic, bureaucratic approach because it's probably the easiest to market. You know, like you can only be together with your family forever if you engage in these particular rituals from these particular authorized individuals in this particular context and follow these particular rules thereafter. Otherwise, it doesn't happen. That sounds a lot more pressing and engaging than we just believe that relationships are eternal. They'll outlast death. We can we can build good, healthy relationships here and now. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> uh, you know, it's it's a little nebulous. It's not good for marketing, I guess. So, um, but I I had a I had a really difficult and even traumatic uh, two years as a missionary. And so when I came home, I I had a whole set of issues that were very very different. I think than the ones that I as a volunteer apologist had sort of grown up trying to address. Um, a lot of them were social issues. A lot of them were concerns about abuse of authority or even unearned authority, unearned certainty. Uh, this kind of trying to understand, I guess, in retrospect, I would say I was trying to understand how a person can, can do tremendous harm to another human being while still believing that they're serving the most ultimate capital G good. Mm. Like there's not a doubt in my mind that the, the missionaries who quite frankly traumatized me or even just outright bullied me at times, including my second mission president, that they thought they were doing good things on some level when they were addressing me in the way that they did. Uh, but I was confused because, you know, I was 21. I was, I had no idea what trauma was or anything like that either. I was not very psychologically, uh, I was going to say psychologically well-adjusted, but I think psychologically literate is maybe the better description. Yeah. But um, I, I, I came home with a lot of these issues and I had to sort them out for myself because either people didn't want to talk about them. Um, to be honest, I, I, I lost a lot of friends really, really quickly that I thought were going to be waiting for me uh, when I got home from my mission. I lost them pretty quickly over the years. Uh, especially when I started speaking publicly about what I, I experienced as a missionary. But I think a lot of that writing really took that form of, of trying to address specifically the issues that I faced, but then sort of realizing that those were symptomatic of deeper issues that were appearing in other contexts, for example, for uh, LGBT plus people or for uh, people of color, the history of racism or even kind of the presence of racism among many Latter-day Saints today. I started to realize that while obviously I'm not a person of color and while I'm not an LGBT plus person, there were these interesting commonalities that their struggles seemed to be symptomatic of a deeper issue that also bred the struggles that I was having. So I think my writing was an attempt to sort of make sense of that and I guess in some way try to fix it, though I, I have sort of... Uh, left behind the the idea that I'm going to be fixing the LDS church. <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. So we met at the rest in the restoration table 
um, at that point, were you pretty fresh? Like when we first met, like pretty fresh um, off your mission? What's been the time frame? Well, I guess yeah. I think it was since... about a year and a half ago that we first met for the restoration table. Uh, so that would have been about 2021, like early 2021. Yeah, I got back right. from my mission in. I got back from my mission in 2015. So, uh, like, interestingly, between 2015 and 2021, or even 2018, I should say, I, I sort of just, like, drifted away from the church. Like, I think, like, a lot of people who have been, like, through traumatic experiences and don't understand what it was, what it was, I just sort of unconsciously and automatically drifted away from the things that I associated with those traumatic experiences. Okay. So, like, I tried to make YSAs work. I tried to make even BYU Provo work, uh, and it didn't work out. So I just sort of drifted away and I never really addressed the why of what was going on there. I just knew that when I first returned from my mission, if I saw missionaries with black tags, especially elders, I would have panic attacks, like immediately, wow. involuntary. Um, and actually, in fact, when I stopped having panic attacks, seeing missionaries, that was when I knew I was healing, which was a good sign. But uh, there was a long time when I just didn't really address anything. And there was this moment, uh, interestingly, uh, there's this photographer. I don't know if she's still uh, doing doing these projects, but uh, I believe her name is Megan Kale, uh, Megan K. Guileman. She did this beautiful uh, set of photos called Works of Translation. And it's it, one photo is this staged photo of, of of someone depicting Joseph Smith sitting across from Anubis, the god of death, the Egyptian god of death, and between them is this big scale. Is and on one side is is Joseph Smith's heart. And then on the other side is a feather from the Egyptian god Mayat, who who represents truth. So the idea is after in your afterlife, you know, your heart, your essence is being weighed against truth to see if you were, in, in an oversimplified way, a good person or a bad person. Um, but I looked at that and I felt this deeply impactful moment where I thought, like, the proverbial Joseph Smith in my heart, the proverbially Mormon layers of my heart, if I were to really weigh those against truth, had I actually sorted them out? Like it, it created this uh, feeling that I had not actually addressed anything that I had been through. I had mm. just sort of fled from it. So uh, that was actually in 2018. I, I made a very lengthy Facebook post detailing everything I had been through as a missionary. And it caught a lot of people's attention, including uh, like Richard Osler from Listen, Learn, Love. And he invited me on his podcast. And that was kind of like the start of just like starting to write more and more and more. I found that once I started writing, I kind of couldn't stop for about three years. Uh, mm -hmm. And when I when I joined the restoration table in um, 2021, that was kind of the tail end, I think, of a lot of my essays, like for about for about however long that group was the most active. I found that most of my writing was lengthy comments and replies to uh, initial posts and stuff. And I found that the more I did that, the less I wanted to do that, not because it was unpleasant, but because I felt less and less of a compulsion to do it and less and less of like a need to do it. Yeah. I, I, that was similar for me. Maybe that's why it's fizzled out. Right. Hmm. It served uh, its purpose. Maybe. Yeah. Like, I don't know. It seems like people kind of leave in, in groups. And so they're in the same phase. So they would uh, kind of be interesting to each other. Right. And then as mm -hmm. they kind of leave, they stay together, but then maybe they were uninteresting to newer people to the process i don't know i want to put a link to that listen learn and love episode too hmm. i think it's episode 124 it's 
like Nathan Smith, psychology student, RM, and then he put special at the end. <laughs> I don't know what he's he's a sweet man, Richard. He's he was very kind to me for sure. So after um, the restoration table, it's been a while. What have you been doing since then? The the YouTube channel is probably the biggest thing I've done since, but that was pretty recent, uh, like the latter half of this year. Uh, other than that, though, I've just mostly been focusing on on what I've been doing at, at Texas State. I've been kind of more than a full-time student, just trying desperately to get out of my undergraduate degree already and uh, prepping for like grad school, taking the GRE. I've been a research assistant at a lab here that uh, specializes in consensual non-monogamy too, which was uh, has been a really fascinating time. Um, but uh, yeah, besides that, I've just been kind of like doing... Uh, the, the most I've been doing, I think, in the past year has been just like small side things. Like I've, I've guessed, uh, been a guest on on my friend Steve Pinecker's uh, show, Mormon Book Reviews, a few times. And he, again, beyond his encouragement to do my own YouTube channel, the most recent thing, I've been, uh, I've been mostly just hitting the books and being a student. I did kind of want to touch on the video that you did on Steve's channel was uh, transhumanism. I've heard oh. that a lot, but I... I can't say that I've looked into it to understand what it is, but it does seem to be, I, it seems to be going around. So what, what is that? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I think the most uh, iconic version of Mormon transhumanism, especially right now, specifically Mormon transhumanism, because it's not an, ex it's not an exclusively Mormon thing. It's, it's a broader concept. Okay, it's yeah. in fact, it's typically, it's actually quite secular. And uh, there are a lot of transhumanists who are actually quite hostile to religion in general. Um, okay. But uh, it's it's basically in its shortest form, it's basically trying to take an ethical approach to technological advancement in order to to ameliorate or even eliminate uh, entirely the the problems that we as human beings face. So mm -hmm. we get sick. Let's try to advance technology to eliminate sicknesses. We die. Let's try to to advance technology to eliminate biological death. People have already died. Perhaps there are technological ways of reviving people who have already died. Like it gets, hmm. it, there's there's progressive layers. There are certainly people who are very much more, let's say, hard nosed about it. So if you start talking to them about like resurrecting the dead, they might like squirm in their chair and think like, oh, that that doesn't sound right to me. Thank, uh, but I, I, I maybe that's the other guys. And then there are okay. folks who think like there's quantum tunneling and we're going to go back in time and pluck people who die in the very moment from their death and like bring their consciousness to the future and put them in a new body. Like it's, it's a very wide range of people, but. Um, so what, what yeah. does it mean to be that though? Like this sounds more like ideas of what we'd like the, to see the future be like, but what, what is it that you actually do? If you say, Hey, I'm a trans transhumanist. What does that actually mean for what you do? Like you just research that stuff a lot. Like what? Oh well, I'm. How, how does I'm a person not, like? How does I'm a person? One. Oh no, no. I I'm yeah. saying I'm saying. But what what does that mean to be? Does that make sense? What I'm saying? Yeah. Like, like what what does a transhumanist do? Is right. a great question. Um, I I I would kind of defer to. I, I think can, it was I think it was Lincoln Cannon. Um, who the one of the one of the folks who co-founded the Mormon Transhumanist Association. He put it really well that a transhumanist is not someone who believes transhumanist things, but does transhumanist things. And so for, for him and for a lot of transhumanists that I've encountered, uh, to be a transhumanist is to support certain technologies that, that one believes are going to be of a positive impact on, on the future, um, to support certain initiatives that one believes will be positively impacting the future. 
and to uh, it's I guess it's a form of activism in a way, in a manner of speaking. It's just it's just particularly directed in a certain way. So, for example, one might be very concerned that uh, at some point we might find a realistic way of eliminating biological death, or at the very least, expanding, extending human life to uh, a more or less indefinite degree. And then they might have concerns that that's something that's going to be blocked by uh, financial issues, economic issues. So suddenly we're going to start seeing economic disparities have even more life and death consequences than they already do in the world. Like the wealthy will live forever and the poor will die at maybe age 40 to 80. Um, This is interesting. This reminds me of Upload, uh, that one. I don't know if you're familiar with that show. I think that's on uh, sci-fi, right? I, I don't, I think... I don't know. My brother told me to watch it and I did it. And it was, it was, it was, that's what this, that's what this reminds me of. Cause it depends if you had the money to go be uploaded. That's, that was the thing yeah. you had to have the money to do it. Right. Yeah. And a lot of, I've, I've seen a lot of transhumanists respond really positively to that show actually. Cause I think it's a good illustration, not only of like the interesting things that we theoretically could accomplish down the line. Cause there's no like logically necessary ceiling to how far our technology can go. I mean, like there's no, logically necessary limit to how advanced medicine can become how advanced computers can become things like that and they and they become more and more integrated right because we're not talking about like attaching like a like a 1980s style terminator arm to your shoulder like technology becomes more and more human looking right like so for me a visually impaired person like five thousand years ago my my technology for ameliorating my visual impairment would be other human beings guiding me around or things like that. And uh, today it's it's glasses over my eyes, but I could have contacts that are closer to my eyes and even more subtle, or I could even have surgical things that alter my actual eyeball. And then right. in the future, we could have gene editing possible. So like it, it gets subtler and subtler. So people really liked Upload for that reason, because it kind of was a great illustration of what can happen on a positive level, and also an interesting look at what can happen on a negative level, the reason why activism in the form of transhumanism might actually be necessary. Interesting. One of the things you said in there, we could have no problems. And I'm just like, if we had no problems, what would we do? Because <laughs> isn't that kind of what our purpose is, is to solve oh, problems? Yeah. Like, that, that, opens a whole different can of worms. It wouldn't take very long of us just sitting, you know, um, like in a hot tub all day eating grapes before we start breaking stuff. Just so it yeah, things get interesting. I think you got that from Dostoevsky even. Like we could, we could give everybody every imaginable pleasure and they could just, they could just have every need met and someday they're just going to wander into the foyer and just smash a vase just for the hell of it. Like, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Something about us needs it needs something like that, I guess. Or I don't know. Maybe this technology can get rid of that for us. But then, it, then it, it really becomes like really big question of like, what's the purpose? I think that's what a lot of transhumanists are trying to address. In fact, is kind of like trying to envision that ahead of time. Because I mean, there's there's this interesting thing, Moore's law, that like the amount of essentially the amount of space that you need for X amount of computation is getting like it's you need half the amount of space every, I think it's like five years or something like that. And that that's held consistently for like, or every year rather. And that's held consistently for like 50 years. And so it means that exponentially we're going to be advancing in some level, at least hardware wise. So well, aren't we running into like uh, physical problems though? Like with the size of 
the components can't get that any might smaller. be beyond my expertise i'm afraid oh. <laughs> but i, I yeah, think but that's they, that, that they're running into yeah. that problem where like mm -hmm. things are getting so small that you we physically can't make it yeah i guess i guess quantum computing is where where that yeah, comes maybe, in maybe or something like that maybe i don't know maybe there's something beyond the physical i'm i'm the liberal arts right? major for a reason <laughs> is all i can say <laughs> Uh, thanks for that little, hmm. you seem to know more about it than I do. And so I was, well, I, it's funny because, uh, the Mormon transhumanist association was one of those groups I encountered as a kid. Um, when I was, when I was getting, uh, hooked up with fair Mormon actually. So I've, I've known about Lincoln Cannon and Carl Youngblood, the two men that I interviewed with Steve, uh, for like, gosh, years, I've been following them for like years and years. And so interviewing them was like a real treat. Cause it was kind of yeah. like, I got to pull in two of my Mormon heroes and like get to ask them questions directly instead of just like watching their YouTube videos or like their conference presentations and things like that. That's cool. Yeah. So uh, the next thing um, we were talking a little bit, you were saying how uh, is, so I feel uh, like I, I try to build bridges at least and I, I try, but I, I'm sure I'm not good at it, but I, I feel like, um, we can benefit by being around those that we are not like, like, I just think that benefits people to not be in echo chambers basically. Um, and so anyway, we were talking, you were, you were talking about how your what your goal, cause you want to be a therapist eventually. Mm -hmm. And so anyway, go ahead and tell us about what, if, if you're a therapist and you're helping someone that's deeply religious, like, what would you do to help that person? Like what ethically do you have to do? Yeah. Well, so it's, it's interesting because I think, um, I think a lot of people uh, may, maybe, maybe not a lot of people, but I, I think some people don't realize that when, when you have a client that's very religious, for example, like let's just say for particular reasons, um, like a very traditional Latter-day Saint, very dyed in the wool, like Utah Valley, long time LDS heritage, uh, Latter-day Saint come into my office, I, as as a former Latter-day Saint, am under ethical obligations to not, like, attempt to essentially alter their religious outlook. Like, I can't just be like, hey, can you check out this favorite link? I, 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 I Here's my favorite, uh, I, I hate to say, like, anti-Mormon thing by any means, but, like, here's the, here's the latest debunking of Mormonism. It's like, no, 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 I, I can't do that. And it would be, it would be unethical and immoral in my opinion. Um, so instead, what I would have to do is I would have to help that person explore the worldview that they come to me with and try to find the healthiest way to live within that worldview. So, I mean, it might look like actual concrete theological alterations on their end in some ways. For example, I would probably want to try to help them to have maybe less of a, of a, of a dogmatic approach to theology. I would want to try to introduce a little bit of healthy uncertainty about the world, not just about Mormonism in general or about truth claims, but just about the world in general, about what we think, what we feel, what other people think, what we think they think about us, things like that. Um, so for, uh, the, the perspective that I've tried to develop as a wannabe therapist uh, and as someone who does uh, aspire to be a psychotherapist is to try to find a way to help people to find the healthiest way to live their own particular life. Because my goal is not to just make you over in a particular image. I don't have a, an objective uh, ideal that I would need to work a patient over into. 
Like there's just no version of this. There's no singular version of what it looks like to be mentally healthy and thriving. And so I would, I would want to approach a person within their, their worldview, within their bounds. And I mean, sometimes there's extreme cases, obviously, where like perhaps re religious abuse is, is involved. Uh, but generally speaking, I think that we are fully capable of engaging people in the worldviews and the religious identities that they come to us in, uh, in a way that leaves them happier, healthier, and well, better more pro-social members of society, let's say. Yeah. Well, that that's interesting. I if I I don't know much about therapy, but from what I've gathered from different things I've listened to, it seems like the if your therapist is doing their job right, they aren't trying to fix you. They're helping you figure out how to fix you. They're asking you the question so that you and that to me seems like the best way to engage with anybody is I want to help like I'd, I'd love to be able to help people help themselves because I'm not them and I don't know what's best for them I don't know their personality I don't know the different things internally that they're working on or you know like I just I don't I'm not them and so and even even if I were them I don't even know what's best with for me all the time like and I'm working that out so it seems it, it seems like a how can a, how could a therapist possibly know what, what's best for somebody else, but just to yeah. help guide them through fixing, not fixing themselves, but just, um, it kind of is, I mean, they need someone to help them think through it, I guess. That's what a trained therapist is doing, right? <clears throat> well, it's, it, it's, am I, am I off on that or is there no, something not at else all. that I a think, therapist is doing? I think, um, in my entirely unprofessional opinion, that's spot on. <laughs> I think that's great. Well, yeah. Um, you know, it's yeah. it's it's funny because I think that I I I was strongly influenced by uh psychoanalytic schools of thought. So I'm a big fan of people like Jacques Lacan, Melanie Klein, Wilfred uh Wilfred Bion, who are big names in psychoanalysis, um, beyond like Freud, obviously. But um one of the things that Lacan would talk a lot about and others as well is kind of the role of the analyst in people's therapeutic journey. And for Lacan, a therapist was essentially a mirror. Like you're not supposed to be like this particular character with this particular personality for your patient. You're supposed to be a mirror because it's it's impossible essentially to see your own life from the inside. And so you as an analyst would reflect back the parts of the patient's mind that might not be immediately obvious to the patient. And it might come in the form of just maybe a well-timed question or maybe just pointing out a word they used. Something like that that begins this this concatenation, this process of, um, of self-discovery for that person that maybe, maybe gives them just a little bit more freedom, but at the very least, a little bit more self-understanding. Mm -hmm. For me, I think that, you know, therapy is just one approach to things. It's the one that I'd like to be trained in, of course, but I think there's lots of different approaches, but I think the through line essentially is something like this, that uh, you're born into the world as something kind of like a spoken word. But you're born into a world of people who are very, very good at speaking over you, and they spend your entire lifetime speaking over you until you are conditioned and socialized to know how to speak over yourself without even realizing it. To the point that when you get quiet, and all the world around you gets quiet, and you finally start hearing your own inner voice, perhaps even for the first time, it can be jarring or even traumatic in some cases. So I think a therapist and, 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 and someone in your position as well, bridge builders in general too, 
I think the best thing they can do is try to help someone silence the voices that speak over them and to be able to hear their own unique voice for the first time. And that unique voice may be the most dyed-in-the-wool Mormon you could ever imagine. It might be the most obnoxious New Age atheist you can imagine. Or like, uh, you, you know, it may be crystals and mantras being chanted all day, every day. Or it may be just someone who's very content going to um, do office work and never really thinking about cosmic questions in the first place. Like, whatever is you, I think, personally, I take as axiomatic, is probably the healthiest thing for you to be because there's nothing else for you to be. Everything else is a sham. Well, that's interesting because this gets back to it. Um, I was talking um, with Christopher um, uh, before the crow's nest. We were getting into that a little bit, like who who are you? And that's even kind of a tricky idea. Like yeah. if, if that's even, I, like I, I think it would be, I, I'm, I'm not sure. I guess I question whether I was, I was born something like mm -hmm. I, I guess that's not totally true I, I definitely have like certain personality traits that were probably that that came with me right mm -hmm. but um I don't know that's just that's really interesting to think about that yeah well there's some quiet part of me that I need to find but I'm not sure that what I'm finding is really me even you know what I mean like I think I'm just a conglomeration yeah. of everything that's touched my life including yeah well I mean you know? the conditioning <laughs> the socializing is deep I mean, the moment you're born, you are handed off into a culture and you're handed right. off into people with a particular with particular lives of their own. And I mean, I've heard one description of therapy that I've really loved is when you enter therapy as an adult, it's learning how to outgrow the child that your parents needed you to be at some point. Like mm -hmm. we're, we're not static beings. I, I, I think that we can still be something deep down without having to be something right from the get go. Mm -hmm. But but uh, there is a sense in which I think we always precede ourselves, at least our conscious selves. So there's this um, psychoanalyst I loved, uh, James Grotstein. He, he's, he's passed away now, but he was, he was a big uh, student of Melanie Klein and Wilford Beyond, and, and he wrote this beautiful book with this very cumbersome title, Who is the Dreamer Who Dreams the Dream? And uh, he got this title from an experience he had while in medical school. I think he was in residency at the time or something along those lines. But he, he woke up one day from a dream with this very palpable experience, this palpable feeling that he had had no role in constructing the dream he had just experienced. Like the details of the dream don't really matter for this particular example. What matters is that he felt entirely like a witness to the dream that he had just had. But if you take the more materialistic assumptions that I, I, I personally take and that I think many of us do take, that, that dreams are products of your neurology. They're not invasions of, of, say, you know, like other beings giving you some sort of vision or anything like that. If we take that as axiomatic, that it's your brain constructing this dream, then what is this deep down self that automatically, outside of your will, outside of your awareness, constructed this vivid dream experience? and then handed it off to you. Like there's this layer of yourself that you've yet to meet. And I think that's the part of ourselves that we need to sort of discover or at least create a relationship with. Well, I guess the thing I am curious about, and I, it would be interesting to learn about this more, mm -hmm. is, is, is there a singular thing under that? Like I kind of feel like our, our sense of self is a, it seems to be some kind of integration of many selves, like, like so like um 
I, I read Jordan Peterson's map of maps of meaning book. Um, mm. And in there, he, he has this one chapter that was very memorable for me. And he, he talked about like, if you're hungry, um, if you're hungry, you, that self is going to be the one that's driving things. Right. Mm. And then you have other different, I don't, I don't know that this is how he described it, but um, so this is totally a paraphrase paraphrase and it was from like a couple years ago too so it's rusty but i just remember it seemed profound because the integration of all of those different drives that we have as humans seems to be the the self that we kind of think of ourselves as but it's not a singular thing so it's just yeah. it's it's just i don't know it's a little bit weird to think yeah of. well I, it, underlying all of that that is yeah. um to be found i guess that was something I really resonated with uh, when I was first introduced to Freud. And, and Freud is a man who's steeped in caricatures, uh, caricatures, so that, misunderstandings. That, that, was, that was him that came up with that? Well, I, he has a way of expressing something similar. I would probably okay. say that the best, the best modern approach to what you're describing is probably Richard Schwartz. He, he pioneered a modality, a therapeutic modality called internal family systems. And it's, its whole whole point is that you are not like a singular mind. You're more like the result of a conference of minds. And there's a capital S self beneath and behind that entire conference. That's the part of you that sort of like is able to listen objectively to those various parts of yourself, is able mm -hmm. to negotiate things maybe a little bit more with those various parts of yourselves, maybe, uh, you know, try to uh, create healthier relationships between those various sub-personalities. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I would draw an analogy to what Freud would talk a lot about too. Freud would talk a lot about how his goal of psychoanalysis was what he called sublimation. And so basically what he meant by that was that you are this wad of various energies, let's say, things that, that want to go off, things that need to express themselves. But you're born into a society that tells you to repress certain energies, certain drives, certain instincts or impulses or the like. And Freud focused quite a bit on sexuality because that was an era he grew up in where, you know, sexuality was a deeply repressed thing. And yet it was such a fundamental part of human being. And so sublimation is taking one of those energies, let's say, and giving instead of repressing it and saying, no, 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 don't do anything until we we have this imaginary point where it just stops trying to express itself, which doesn't happen. You instead give it a healthy way of expressing itself. You try to find a way that's more conducive to living in a, a healthy society and healthy relationships and in a healthy way personally. So that was something I really resonated with with Freud. I agree with you that I don't think we're these just like singular beings, but I think that there is a level of our deep down self that's not that doesn't really lend itself to how we consciously think typically and how we consciously think typically is often in in distinctions in like analysis we pick things apart we analyze their yes. little bits and we try to understand how they interact with each other right but yeah. i don't think that the deep down self is intellectually understood any more than i think like a beloved spouse is intellectually understood like the healthiest mm -hmm. connection to a spouse is not like oh, I know exactly what's going on in your mind. I know all the neurons that are firing and everything like that. It's when you know them, not mm -hmm. know about them. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I, yeah, you're, John Verveke talks about this. Like there's lots of different kinds of knowing, right? There's mm. like, it, he, he defines, I, I, I can't remember all of them, but one is like participating yet in order to know you have to participate in the thing. And, and you're talking about like, I, 
I know I can trust someone. It's like you couldn't you couldn't solve for that. Like you just you know you trust somebody. And anyway, he had yeah. And then and there's the the knowing like I know that you know this this mouse that I have is black, right? Like there's that kind of knowing, um, propositional knowing. Anyway, he had a bunch of different ones. And then the other reason I kind of had this thought about, it seems like there are more selves within us. I I don't know if you, I'm sure maybe you haven't, I don't know. Uh, the split brain, um, yes. Studies are crazy. Like that, Mm -hmm. if, if there's any, it seems like, each side of your brain has their own personality. Like, and so, but then they want, they want to present themselves as a single, like that, that's fascinating to me. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting too, because the, 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 the neat thing about the split brain experiments that went on was that when you separate, when you, when you sever the corpus callosum um, and the two have the two hemispheres can't communicate anymore, they do become distinct. They individuate from one another. They're, you know, it, it, you've, you've seen this, like the like the visual system has a different way of expressing itself than, say, like the verbal system. They want to be different like careers. One wants to be a race car driver and the other wants to be a teacher. And like neither is God a, and the other one. One believes in God and one doesn't. Exactly. And neither yeah. is aware of the other. Like the 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 cross communication that's in a, in a, let's say, a healthy brain or at least a typical brain is just not there anymore. And so I think that, you know, a, a, a fully fleshed out person, a fulfilled person, let's say, someone who's whole, is someone who's integrated all of those bits and pieces of themselves into a healthy conversation, into a healthy conference or congress with one another. Because I think the, 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 the unhealthy bit is when we cut off one of those parts, when we exile it, even without even, without even realizing it sometimes. And then I think that there are deeper layers of ourselves that we're just not trained to engage. Like the, the deeper layers of our our, uh, our mind, our, our psyche, if you will, that haven't really been cut off by like trauma or conditioning or anything like that, but that are just not, for whatever reason, for whatever like evolutionary design or what have you, they're just not immediately accessible to us. Hmm. I thought it would be interesting too, to talk a little bit about the idea of, of you used a phrase before we started recording of the abuse of language is when people oh. are referring saying, Hey, um, yeah. Do you believe in God? So I, I, I'd love to have that conversation. So there's this, this philosopher I really love deeply, Ludwig Wittgenstein. Um, and I, I kind of got a better grasp of Wittgenstein thanks to one of my good friends, Brandon Wilson, who I actually interviewed on, on my channel, mind makes this world. He's a PhD stand uh, student at um, Claremont graduate. Uh, and he's he's also a Latter Day Saint, and we also actually served in the same mission together. Wow. So we've we've known each other for a very long time, and he's a very very thoughtful person. I, I highly recommend the interview, and not just because it's on my channel. Um, <laughs> but uh, Wittgenstein. So Wittgenstein's whole point was that he felt that philosophy, at, at least as it was done in his era, was a fundamental abuse of language. So I think with with a lot of us, we think that when we are when we are discussing topics like this or even debating topics like this, and I'm actually not a fan of, of formal debate, not just because I'm a non-confrontational wiener, but like because I think that, the, that Wittgenstein has this real point here. We think that we are comparing objective views of the world. And so the only thing to do is to debate who has the most accurate objective depiction of the universe. But Wittgenstein says that the problem is actually a little, a little you know, 
a little more wriggly than that. The problem is that you can't really say anything deeply objective about the universe per se. You can really only say, or at least try to say, what you are experiencing of the universe. You speak in subjective terms, and you can't seem to escape this subjectivity. So, you know, when, when I when I express myself, when I say things like you are, you come into the world like a spoken word, and you know, people teach you how to speak over yourselves. I can't really make an objective statement about that. I'm sure there are people who have come into the world who are perfectly fine. They feel very self-aligned, very fulfilled personally, and they never really felt like they were conditioned out of that. It may just not be true for them, but it was true for me. And I think what, that's one of the things that drove mm. me to be a therapist. But that's the fundamental difference, isn't it? Because I'm not trying to make necessarily, though sometimes I come off that way and sometimes I think I'm trying to do it. I'm not trying to make objective statements about the universe that I'm trying to convert you to. I'm trying to express to, express to you how I experience the universe. And that's as far as my horizons really stretch. And there's another issue at hand here, too, that Wittgenstein really touched on well with this thought experiment. He said to essentially imagine like a group of people standing in a room and each of them has a little box in hand and each of them says that in that box is a beetle. But the problem is that you don't necessarily know what's in the box, even though they're all telling you, well, in my box, it's a beetle. Well, in my box, it's a beetle. That's interesting because if you pop open one box, it may be a bug. And if you pop open another box, it may be a small car. Like the, the word beetle is not a self-defining, self-existent thing. It's just a sound we make to try to tell each other what we ourselves are experiencing in our own proverbial box. So, I mean, that's that for me is like a big motivation. I mean, Wittgenstein, I think, has a huge point here that I don't know if a lot of people have really metabolized or integrated, and maybe they have, and I'm just ignorant to it. But it's one of the things that I try to draw into my aspirations as a psychotherapist, which is that when someone comes to my office and they tell me something, you know, like I, I have to listen for what they are experiencing, not necessarily for what like objective statements they may be trying to make. Like, for example, uh, a person may come in with a personality disorder and there's this concept called countertransference where the therapist essentially ends up taking within themselves that negative affect that a patient brings to the table. Like a patient might or a patient or a client might say like, you're an idiot. I hate you. You don't care about me. You're just trying to get your buck. I don't like you. You don't like me. Why are we here? And I might take that home with me and think, oh my gosh, I'm probably just a jerk. Like they don't, I don't care about them. What if I don't care about them? Am I a bad person? But the real approach you really need to take is this more Wittgensteinian approach, which is when they say, you don't like me, you don't care about me. They're saying, I don't feel liked. I don't feel cared about which is very, very different from you are an, a, like an unliking, uncaring person. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No. Uh, so uh, I guess the idea of projection, right? Like mm -hmm. that, that is, that's something that um, has dawned on me. Like, I think a lot of times, even ex-Mormons, when they leave, they project onto all the Mormons that are still active, the Mormonism that they believed, right? Yeah. And which is probably not fair. And we do it all the time. Um, we also, yeah. But so, so the idea of projection is kind of woven in there a little bit. It seemed like, um, the other thing, it's interesting. The, I, the whole idea of objective truth and whether objective truth really exists, you know, that I, I, I that sounded like, um, you're touching on that a little bit. And I guess, um, 
there, there's something about language though. Like what's the point of even conversing with you if we don't think we're talking about, we're not trying to talk about the same thing. Like I understand that objective truth, uh, uh, objective truth is evasive mm-hmm. and it's hard to comprehend or even maybe we'll, we'll never find it, but it's, it's like that, that trying to get there. It's like, if, if we can kind of agree on a certain set of ling- words and language and then they mean something and we're talking about the same thing and it's not just my subjective understanding of things, but we're actually trying to talk about the same thing. It, it can help through, like, I can give you a little idea package and here's the idea package that I have for you. And you can give me your idea packages. And then it's, um, and it's just another way to learn and it, yeah. it's very useful. And it, I would like to think that it's somewhat related to some kind of reality, right? Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I but there, there are some shortcomings, right? Like, sure. Well, I, I, I think I agree with you. I think that language can convey, I guess what we could call consensus realities. I'm very skeptical of like capital O objective realities that we think we're conveying to each other, especially when we get into discussions. Yeah. Like capital T truth, like, especially when it comes to philosophy or, or, or even religion, I get very skeptical about that. But I don't think that, um, like, you know, for for example, if I buy a shelf from Ikea and I crack open the instructions, if they have words, I'm not sure if Ikea instruction manuals have words. They might just be pictures. But I, I trust <laughs> that the that pictures, way, <laughs> yeah, well, I trust that the pictures are showing me a reality that exists outside of the head of the person who put together this little manual. But I don't think, I don't think language, and this is maybe maybe me just sharing how I feel and how I live my life. I don't think language is primarily to share information. I think it's primarily to socialize. Like there's this um, this perspective in gener- called generative anthropology. It's kind of new, and it's I don't know if it's fringy, but it's not um, it's not like a mainstream thing. But it's just a, an approach to linguistics essentially, and it tries to answer the question of where language, specifically symbolic uh, communication, came from. So not just like spoken language, but you know gestures. You know we have we have gestures that like mean things, but they don't mean things inherently. We just have like ways of communicating with each other. There's some rude ones we can give each mm-hmm. other too. We know exactly what I they mean. I was just thinking of that, but I wasn't yeah. going to you off. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not sure what the <laughs> threshold for profanity here is on your program. I could get, I could get pretty saucy. Um, but the, the, the hypothetical that I've, I've, I've heard given for this was essentially something like this. So imagine like a lot of pre-humans, like a, ga- a group of pre-humans hunting after an animal. And they've they've sort of thrived off of like who the like whoever's the most aggressive and the most violent gets to be the top of the chain, right? Like gets to be the top of the hierarchy, let's say. Um, but there's this moment when they hunt a beast and everybody's exhausted, and suddenly the hierarchy of like pure aggression breaks down because everybody's like just worn the heck out. No one's really going to be able to beat the heck out of each other, and they all reach for the corpse at the same time. And so that raises an interesting question. Who deserves more of that body? Or who deserves any amount of that body? So we might start, this, this might be like a hypothetical beginning of symbolic communication. Well, you know, so-and-so, you know, they set all the traps. We just did a lot of the running. Or what's his face? You know, he leapt off that cliff and he got the animal in the end. Like, that was spectacular. We start to think about abstract things, like, uh, like merit, like what we deserve. And it's it's um it's interesting because it's not really objective information. It's just a way of socializing with each other. And I think that that's kind of a little bit of what Wittgenstein picked up on, which is that when we 
when we speak to one another, we can't really, maybe we can. I mean, we can at the very least share consensus realities. I don't know if they're objective realities. I mean, quite frankly, like reality is we experience it thanks to our like highly conditioned nervous system and brain, maybe just nonsensical if you try to like relate it to like the reality of like a, a fruit fly. It's, it's just another way of experiencing a very amorphous existence, I guess you could say. But language can tell you a little bit of like what I'm feeling and I want you to understand how I'm feeling or like mm -hmm. what I'm experiencing and I want you to understand what I'm experiencing. It's why we go to therapy. It's why we try to communicate more clearly with one another. It's not just because we want to share like bare amounts of information, though that, that may be a goal. It's because we want to be able to interact with one another in some way, shape, or form. I, I guess that's kind of how I would, would try to respond to that. But again, I'm, you know, I can't make it an objectively true, capital T, true statement here. I'm, I'm just me, you know? I guess, uh, yeah, I mean, you definitely, you definitely swim into these ideas and stuff. And, and I, I thought a lot about it and I felt like, um, so I think it was Jonathan Haidt had a discussion with Sam Harris and I, I really liked the way that Jonathan Haidt framed truth. Anyway, he said something along the lines of as individuals were terrible at discovering truth, but as a group of people, we come a lot closer. And so it's not, I, I it's weird to, I understand that like things I'm interacting with might not seem they they're only real from my perspective, right? Like it would make no sense to me how it is real from a fruit flies perspective. That would make no sense to me. I, I can't use that. It's not useful, but there's still like, like there's still a pencil here, right? Yeah. Like I'm still holding something that is called a pencil that I've, we've decided to call a pencil. Um, and so I, I do feel like there's a reality that we're engaging with and that the closer that we are aligned with that reality, the better we can get to the goals that we make and yeah. aim for, right? Absolutely. So, and I think that's a consequence of, of exactly what you're describing with height here, which is like the need to engage other people, especially like what you said earlier, people who don't see the world the way we do. Like yeah. it, it expands our worldview. It helps yes, us sure. to get out of our limitations a little bit. Like I, I, you know, it's, it's kind of a heady thing to say, maybe there's not objective truths, but there are consensus realities. But like at the end of the day, really what we're looking for is to make sure that we can engage the world in a useful way, that we can engage other people in a pro-social way, a way that like leads to thriving, whatever that might look like. Um, but I, I don't know if, if, if on a practical level, we really care as much as we think we do about like cosmic levels of objective truth. I think, well, I think the only, the only time it, it, it starts to rub me the wrong way is mm. like, if, is it's, if, if people like recluse down into their individual truth mm. and they're not caring about that bigger truth, yeah. because I understand, I, I understand that, um, it, that I guess that's the problem. It, when, once we kind of realize the problem, go, holy cow, we, we can't know the truth. I understand that truth is hard and I understand that there's not really a great answer for it, but to stop engaging with others and just decide I have my truth and my truth is the only truth that matters. Mm. We well, should want my truth to still be closer aligned to reality. And I think we get closer to that by engaging with 
all truth, like all the people's yeah. truth. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's it's funny because I think that um, you know, it's it's funny because that 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 solipsistic approach where it's just like, well, we can't know truth, so I'm just going to assume that what I think is true is is true. It's, it's just funny as good as anybody else's idea of truth, right? Well, or at the very least, like when when one triples down on their own idea of truth, like it's just another return to objective truth. It's just functionally objective truth instead mm, of like, you know, intellectually. Because it's like, if, if, if I want to get real like nihilistic about it, or even maybe just postmodern about it, like mm -hmm. the idea that like, oh, well, you know, we can't have these authoritative statements. We really can't have these authoritative truths. Therefore nothing really matters like mm -hmm. this is this is the essence of like fascism like in 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 the soviet union or or like let's say actually more modern uh fascism in russia with putin he his his um the people he was instructed in like the the, the writers and philosophers he was instructed in essentially gave him this worldview that because the world is nonsensical because the world doesn't like yield to objective analysis as easily as we think it does. For we sure. need, yeah, yeah, exactly. We need strong capital A authority figures who come out of the woodwork as if they're like mythical figures um, who can control absolutely. And there's, mm -hmm. there's concrete political ramifications for that, right? Like when you vote in Russia, it's essentially functionally just a way of saying, do you want to formally say that you support Putin or not. It's not a way of saying, do you want this leader or that leader? And so it's interesting. It's a way of, in a way, kind of bastardizing the idea that we aren't capable of objective truth by creating a new objective truth in its place and just sort of veiling it over, you know? Because if there's no objective truth, there's really no basis for authority like that. Yeah, yeah. That reminds me of the book that we read uh, in our Restoration Table book club. It was called The Sin of Certainty, and it was written mm -hmm. by a Christian guy. And, and I think a lot of times that's, it's kind of, there's a balance, like you have to have some kind of hypothesis of what is so that you can even act on that. Right. Yeah. And so, and I think that's why we kind of get stuck sometimes is because something that's been telling us what is, we've thought that for a really long time and it's hard to update that later when it's been serving us well for so long. Right. Yeah. I think that hits the nail on the head, whether you're a Christian or not. Like when I was when I was a Latter Day Saint, when I when I disconnected from the LDS Church, I think a lot of people assumed that I was going from one set of convictions to another set of convictions. Instead, what happened was I went from one set of convictions to this this lack of faith in conviction as such. Mm -hmm. Like the thing that dis the the thing that for me. Uh, made me want to disconnect from the church ultimately was not like, oh, I found these these counter arguments to the the truth claims that the church makes, though that I think I think there are some interesting counter arguments that should be considered and brought into conversation with what the LDS church is presenting right now. Um, the The thing that for me really did it in was I don't think that one can be sufficiently certain of religious claims in a way that not only, causes them to change their life in concrete ways, but causes them to change other people's lives in concrete ways. So for me, that compromised the idea of authority figures in the LDS church, which is a very central concept, right? Priesthood authority, a yes. prophet who speaks the mind and will of God. None of that seemed authoritative to me anymore because that kind of level of certainty, I, I mean, even in the tradition, we, we call it faith. It's a belief. It's, it's, it's an I think it's a hunch, kind of, and I mean that in a purely neutral sense, but it's not certainty. 
like to say I know the church is true is just a verbal concession. Mm -hmm. Like we don't know anything. We really don't. Right. Like, and so why why live as if you do? I mean, you certainly can. You well, you're certainly how, welcome how, to. What are you? How do you live your life? Like, okay. in a no, shambles. <laughs> well, you know what I mean, though. Like, I, what mm. what I mean though is, you said <clears throat> you said something that I feel like um, I, I can hear. I can hear like a Jacob Hansen. I don't know if you know who that is, but I can hear him saying something along the lines of uh, this is you've left this belief. Like you mm -hmm. just said, here's the set of propositions, you know, you're leaving and you're leaving it for nothing. Like you should be leaving it for something. Mm -hmm. Like, so I, I'm, I'm not even sure that that would satisfy a lot of people. Um, yeah. Cause you have to like, like I was kind of saying earlier, you almost have to have some kind of, foundation to propel yourself off of like or else you're just not moving you're not acting in the world so i'm just curious if you've thought about that like what's propelling you forward like what is it that um you act off of if that yeah. makes sense no absolutely um i think it's an interesting question for sure i um how do i put it i have thought about it I don't know if I can give a satisfactory answer, but I'm not well, super. It, it, it does, if, I, if it's if it's not defined well, or if well, you can't well, describe I, it, that's fine too. Like, like anything that, else, I've I've thought a lot about it. I just don't know if it's going to be terribly satisfying to people. But I don't know if satisfaction is actually an option in a lot of ways. I think that you know, just because we really, really, really want something to be like a foundation for us, doesn't necessarily mean that foundation will exist. But for me, the thing is, is something kind of like this. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of Carl Jung. Um, he's, he's a bit of a, a jester and a bit of a magician for too much for his own good sometimes. But um, he had this, this interesting experience in the, I believe it was the 1920s. He experienced like a psychological break um, at the peak of his career. He had become this very, very well-respected uh, psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. He was a student of Sigmund Freud himself. And even when they had their, their break with one another, he still, you know, carried a great amount of weight in the psychological community. But then he had these, these um, psychological breaks and uh, he, he documented them in these lengthy journal call, journals called the Black Books that he never published, never really, he showed very few people. And then he compiled, compiled them into a big book called the Red Book that he actually went and illustrated. Um, and that wasn't even published until a few years ago, well after Carl Jung has died. Really? Um, yeah. But the, so the, the essence of, of the Red Book, though, is that everything that Jung thought he was and everything that Jung thought he should be very immediately died like it it started to feel so empty and pointless to pursue this this academic success this psychological success this professional success any of it and he got to a point where he was looking inwardly and he expresses this in very visionary terms in the texts um but he got to a point where he started to find parts of himself that he had just locked away he had locked away his his capacity for whimsy and fun, for fantasy. Mm. He had locked away his, his capacity for sensuality. Like he had lo locked away a lot of these bits and pieces of himself, all while his sense of self was just dying on the surface. And for him, the thing that he made, the way that he made sense of it was essentially something like this. There's the spirit of the age that gives you your sense of self. And that was the sense of self that he that was dying for him. It's it's the sense of self that his time and place told him was important. But that that time and place, what it thinks is important, changes quite a bit 
through history. Like this is a very Nietzschean concept. Our values evolve. Um, and then below that though, there's a deep down self, like a, a spirit of the depths, as he called it. There's this, this self that you're sort of always, you always already are this self. No matter how you dress it up, no matter how you pursue the goals that you think are important, there's a you that you always already are. And that's the him that he started started to like come into contact with in these psychological breaks, this underlying deep down self that he had never really met before. And for him, it was actually quite traumatic. But he started to have this deeper sense of self-understanding, this, this depth to himself that he really couldn't access in a, a willful way, that he couldn't change he could really only just embrace it and try his best to understand it, to enter into kind of a healthier relationship with it. But he found, at least for Jung at least, Jung believed that beneath that was an even deeper self. And that deeper self, that capital S self, is essentially the universe itself. Because you don't come into the world like chess pieces being put on a board, and when you're done, you're taken off the board and you go away. You come into the world like a flower growing out of a stalk, or like an apple growing out of a tree, or like a wave coming out of the sea. Like you are this universe expressing itself in a certain shape or form. And for Jung, he found that everything that he thought he was died immediately, but that he was still someone. Deep down, beneath the, the name Carl Jung and all the professional success and his marriage, his children, everything, he, his culture, the, uh, the slowly disintegrating Europe that he lived in prior to World War I, he found that beneath all of that was this more stable self. And it wasn't stable in the sense that it was unchanging, but it was stable in the sense that it was an expression of something more authentic, something deeper. For me, I think that's probably what sustains me. That's a long-winded way of saying it, but I thought for... that was awesome. You did a good job, well, and thank you, you really did address what I was asking. That's that's awesome. So good, good. I'm glad because sometimes finish, I do ramble. Finish, but I cut you off. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, I um, I would probably just say that I, I think probably the easiest way to express it is there's this beautiful book by a, a poet named uh, Atar called The Conference of the Birds. Um, again, it was actually my friend Brandon Wilson who, who pointed me to this book. It's a beautiful poem. And it's, it's basically just like the shortest version is like there's this group of birds who are searching for a king. And one of the birds tells them, you should go and find the Simorg. That's the, the bird that will be your king. And so they all group together. Some of them really don't want to go on the journey. It's a really hard journey. They got good excuses, so they, they step away. And it's a lot of excuses that we would give in our own our day, our own day in life that would turn us away from self-exploration and from the hard choices that we might have to make when we find that we're out of line with the, what our life looks like on the surface. But these birds, they go on this long journey, perilous. They have to go through journeys of love, uncertainty, and even death. And finally, they reach the end. There's this big curtain, and they say that the Simorg is behind the curtain. And they open the curtain... And there's, well, I guess I should say only 30 birds actually made the journey when they get to the curtain. And then they open the curtain to see the Seamorg. And what, what is the Seamorg? It's a mirror. So all they see is 30 birds staring right back at them, themselves. And they're told that that's the Seamorg. And Seamorg is, is a Persian pun. It just means 30 birds. So there's this sense in which we're all looking for this proverbial king. We're looking for this organizing principle, whether that's God, whether it's like family, whether it's this fundamental set of beliefs that our, our lovely religious conservative friends like to tell us we all can't live without. <laughs> and, and we find ultimately that there, there's no 
you know, big capital K king waiting behind the curtain. It's just you. It's what you made. And I think you're worth meeting. And I don't think we've met ourselves. And I think that's what sustains me personally. That's really, no, that's really cool. Um, yeah, I think it's a little woo-woo and new agey, but it, it's no. what draws me to therapy for sure. Well, here's the thing. I, I think, you know, that's tapping into, that's probably tapping into your intuition, whatever that is. Right. Like, yeah. I feel like, um, there are things that guide us without the belief or understanding of where that guidance comes from. Like, I, I'm not sure you have to have a formal religious belief to act in the world. Like that's, I guess not what, um, yeah, that, that, I, I, I agree with you. Um, I'm trying to think of how to tie that back, how to <laughs> tie okay. that back. I, well, I just, I understand that need to have something to move you. Mm -hmm. And I guess um, there, I think that's what actual faith is. I think actual faith is not having the certainty that the things that you're acting on are the right thing, but it's your best guess. And that's, that's what faith is. Like you're going to keep moving anyway. Right. Yeah. And well, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead, please. I, I'm about there. <laughs> That's okay. I, I, do you mind if I add a little anecdote? I, I yeah. have a million of them always, but I think this one is probably quite helpful because I want to be really clear that I'm not, I'm not trying to suggest here that there's no such thing as external reality and that I think it's all in your brain and all that stuff. I didn't even um, hear you saying that though. Okay, good, good, good. Uh, but I, I love the word faith. I really do. I think it's one of religion or Western, like, like English speaking religions, probably one of its, its strongest words and probably one of its most abused. There's this, this, this philosopher I love named Alan Watts, who he juxtaposed the word faith with belief. And I think what a lot of people mean when they say faith is what they mean. They mean belief, like a proposition. Yeah. Like I'm going yes. to say like, there's a God, whatever, however I'd like to define that God. I don't really have like hard proof in the same way that I would have hard proof for say like a, a chemical equation that we can reproduce again and again. But I'm going to, I'm going to propose that that's true. And I'm going to live my life as if that's true. And I, I don't have any like negative statements for people like that. But Watts says that that's not necessarily faith. Faith is trust. Not, not like a proposition or even much less certainty. And so the way he would describe it analogously, analogously was it's more like laying back into water and trusting that the water is going to buoy you up instead of flailing around and trying to keep yourself up. Like, so it's not intellectual. I don't think faith is intellectual. I think it's, it's just purely an act of trust on an yeah. existential level. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And I guess just one final thought as far as um, having a set of religious beliefs. I think mm -hmm. the reason I, I'm not anti-religious at all, because I don't yeah. think that we fully understand what is going on there. And no, so yeah. it would be a mistake to think that to think that it is all just to control the masses. I, I just don't think that's that's what it is. Um, Agreed. Yeah, it makes sense that that's what it is. But if you don't truly believe it, it's, you can't fake it either, right? Like you have, yeah. like you said earlier, I think at its best, something that it's doing is helping you become your best version of yourself, right? Like it's helping you become through interactions with other people that want the best for you and you're helping them become their best per version of themselves, right? Yeah. Um, so 
it, it's hard to get that on your own on a solo path, right? Yeah, <laughs> so, absolutely. And, and people do form their own communities, right? And mm-hmm. um, it, it, it's going to be interesting to see like what the next 50 years brings, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I would. I wish I was around for the next 200 even. Like the, it, I think... I think it's going to evolve. I, I think Nietzsche was spot on when he talked about the death of God and people, people, you know, like to blow this one out of proportion, I think, but basically all he meant was just that the Christianity of his day, it, it isn't a monolith anymore. It, it can't be just this said and done um, set of authoritative facts. It's just kind of one path among all other paths. And it's only gotten worse since then. I mean, Christianity doesn't have the kind of cultural, um, poll that it did 50 years ago, even in the United States. And I think that's a good thing. It means more diversity and it gives us a chance for more inclusivity, ideally. Um, but it, it does leave us in an awkward position because we, I think our, our predecessors organized their lives around this experience of a very trustworthy capital A authority. Yeah. And that's gone, at least for us. Yeah. I'm not sure I I can say good. It's a good thing. It is what it is. Yeah, it is what it is. That's about what I'm willing to say. Um, Yeah, yeah. I have a pretty uh, pretty careful um, conservative personality. Uh, It's probably why I'm more conservative in my politics, too. Just Mm -hmm. that if something is working, uh, I'm just very risk adverse. So if you were going to change something about how we're living in our society, there's... I'm just really worried that it's going to blow things up. Right. And so and, we all need and security. Yeah, well, yeah. And it, it's, you can't actually, you can't actually do much without, um, well, you can do some things, but you can't, I mean, the farther out you feel secure, the more you're willing to risk today. Right. So if I feel stable, I'm willing to, you, know, you need it. You need a stable need center a stable, to work from. Well, you need a stable society to, be able to do the the cool things that get us progress too, right? Yeah. Well, I, I, I'm a big believer in the idea that it's very hard to clean up your house if society is burning around you. Like, you know, it's, it's hard to have a clean lawn if the entire neighborhood has gone to like, gone to pot, you know, like we are holistic beings. We're not like these isolated little diodes or monads. We are uh, contexts. Mm-hmm. And if the world around us is, is in a shambles, it affects us deeply. We embody that yeah. in some way. Yeah. It's been really fun. I'm glad that you took the time to come talk. Um, do you have any last words for the audience? Uh, that's a good question. I think, um, I think the bottom line really is, is, is two things. One, just a very obnoxiously Socratic idea that the only thing I know is that I don't know. Like, I'm not trying to propose that there's any, like, you know, I'm not trying to make any objective statements here, much less the idea that objective statements are impossible and you'll never find one and, and nuts to you. I mean, there's such a thing as mathematics. I rely on mathematics quite a bit. Um, I rely on the iPhone to come out of the box working just like any other iPhone. And if it doesn't, that's a, that's a flaw and we fix that. But the other thing I would point out too is, is because we don't know anything for certain, I think we should be more curious about ourselves because I think that's a much more immediate reality and about other people, or at least to can encourage other people to be more curious about themselves. You know, we, we all have an, an inner life and it doesn't, my inner life does not look like your inner life and your inner life does not look like my inner life. And I think that there's a deep violence an existential violence for one of us to try to like impose our inner life on the inner life of another human being.
I think that I think that all I would want to live leave here with is it's okay to not know and it's okay for people's lives to look different from your own and for your life to look dramatically different from other people's. Yeah. Well, that's that's awesome. Well, we will um, catch everyone later. So thanks again for coming on. Thank you so much. This was wonderful. Mm -hmm.